everyone. Oh, thank you. Sometimes you need to hear voices these days because you can barely see the smiles of the people that you love. We welcome you all to this time of worship, this time when we are gathered as the body of Jesus Christ to bring praise, to bring our petitions, to bring ourselves to God. We start this morning with a, an old hymn, Higher Ground. And I've been thinking about this year and all the excitement, the anxiety-causing excitement of this year. And I've been thinking about how do we live above, above the negative things, the stuff that makes us anxious, the stuff that makes us worry. How do we live above that? And, and, and God has just reminded me over and over and over again, we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he is on higher ground. So this is where we begin today on higher ground, pressing on to that place where Jesus Christ is seated in the heavenlies. Just leave my glory bright. 
Father, we thank you and praise you this day that amongst the people of God, in the place where two or three are gathered in your name, you truly are there in our midst. So as we lift up our hearts to you and worship our Lord, we lift up our hearts to you in song, lift up our hearts to you and open wide the gates of our hearts that you, you the King of glory may come in. Father, we pray. That all glory, all honor, all praise, all adoration will be given to you. The Lord Jesus Christ and to the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are at home, we are going to recite the Nicene Creed. What we as the people of God believe together. Would you stand with me and um, we say together the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I used to get stuck on that word, Catholic, until I understood that all it means is the church, the people of God from ages past into ages future, all of us together gathered. 
before our Lord and our Savior. So I believe the day is coming when we will stand, not socially distanced from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'll be there. We will not be socially distanced from Jonah to ask him what it was like in the belly of the whale. We'll be right there with him. So the day is coming and we sing praise to this God. Erica, will you lead us?
your goodness. We have experienced your grace. So Lord, we, in exchange for our shame, we pick up what you have given us, the garments of praise. We trade in, trade in everything that holds us back from truly worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And we receive the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Amen. Trade in my sorrows.
for the breaking of chains in this beloved country. We are praying for the breaking of chains, the chains of COVID, Lord. We are praying for the breaking of chains, the divisions and the factions and the isms of this world. We are praying to you, Lord, you who have power to break the chains in our own hearts where we see another person as an enemy or as an adversary. Lord, we are able, in your name, to walk the path of love. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would break the chains of poverty, especially for those, Lord, who are really, truly suffering right now from lack of jobs, those, Lord Jesus, whose finances are so threatened that they do not have proper meals. God, we are praying to you to break the chains that bind and give us the freedom that is in Christ Jesus that allows us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and see all things fall in line. The things that we worry about finding their proper place once our eyes are fixed on you. So Lord Jesus, again we declare with confidence, with great power, with great faith, but there is power to break. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. To break every chain, break every chain. Break every chain. Lord, we say to break every chain, break every chain, break every Please have a seat. Good morning. 
My name is Ian. I'm the youth and family pastor here, and we are super excited for this morning for a couple reasons. Um, we have a long-standing tradition of giving out Bibles to our first graders as a, um, a little bit of a rite of passage, but also just a piece to, uh, to encourage them to get into the Word. So could I have Kenny and Adelia come up here? We'll actually have them come down here instead. Hey, Kenny, how you doing? Good. Yours is not the rainbow one. Kind of sorry. Hey, Adelia, how you doing? So, these are your guys' Bibles, right? Kenny, yours is the gray one. You want to grab that one? Whew, heavy, right? Adelia, this is yours. The cases were made by Mrs. Gustafson. So those are your guys's. Can I tell you, you guys want to sit down? Can I, if you want to sit over here, Adelia, if you want to sit here for a second? Can I tell you guys something about those Bibles? So is that just a book? No, it's something, it's something more. It's the Word of God. And sometimes the Word of God is referred to as a sword, okay? In Hebrews, it's called a sword. So swords are pretty cool, right, Kenny? Yeah, they're pretty cool. But... Swords have, have a habit of getting dinged up and, and a little messed up when, when they go into battle, right? So lots of times people like to have swords on their walls or they put them in scabbards. Um, if it stays in that scabbard, does the sword ever get used? What do you guys think? If the sword stays in the scabbard, does it ever cut anything or, or does it get used in battle at all? No, right? It stays in the scabbard. It just stays there. It might look nice, but is it useful? Does it help anyone? No. It's just like the Bible. If you never open it up and you get into it, is it going to help you? Is it going to? Is God going to speak to you through that? No. So you've got to open it up and get into it, okay? So we're super excited for you guys to have those Bibles, and you guys can sit down, okay? So you can go back to your folks. Thanks, guys. All right. Normally, this would be also the time that we would uh, ask for offering. We're not passing around a plate or anything, but if you want to give, we have we thank you for all those who have been faithfully giving. You can give on the back table um, or online, or um, we also have a text service, so you can check that all out in our bulletin or our website at tlefc.org. Um, and it is also oh, it's Communion Sunday, so there's also going to be benevolence. Um, it will be out there, and it will be held by someone. So if you see a plate that's held by someone, that's the benevolence one. If you would bow your heads uh, as we pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together, Lord. We thank you for all those who are gathered here in person, those who are online, those who will watch later, Lord. We ask that you would help us to worship well at wherever we're at, whether we're at home, we're here, we're uh, wherever. Um, help us to worship you well. Help us to glorify you and focus on you through this whole thing. There are lots of hard situations that, that are going on, lots of um, tough decisions that are being made, and, and lots of uh, division, Lord. And I ask that you would protect this church 
protect this congregation, these believers, that we would be united in our pursuit of you and only you, Lord. We praise you as the King and Savior, and we look forward to the day when you come again and, and bring your kingdom physically here. We love you, Father God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us to sing about the lion and the lamb, this God of ours?
say in your word that anyone who confesses you with their mouth that you are Lord can only do so by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Father, for enabling us to sing that Jesus Christ is Lord, we praise you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we bow before you with thanksgiving too, even as we made our petitions known to you. We know that you've heard. We pray for the peace of God which transcends all understanding to be our portion. To be that which causes us to stand with no regrets, with no fear. Stand in hope before you and afraid of the future and afraid of the present and unafraid of our past because you have dealt with it. So we thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the spoken word that is in the mouth and in the heart of Pastor, of Pastor Tim. And Lord, we thank you that the spoken word will find a place in our hearts. Seed planted to bear fruit. So our God, teach us. Correct us. Rebuke us, train us in righteousness as we hear your word. And our amen will be this, he is Lord, he is Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here with us this morning, whether you're gathered with us here in person or you're watching online. We're glad you're here to join us this morning. Just a quick note that at the end of the service, we will celebrate communion together. So if you didn't grab the individually wrapped communion elements on your way in, they're on a table on your way in. If you want to grab one of those, I won't be super offended if you walk out and grab one of those. So, May 21st, 2011, was a somewhat memorable day for me. So for one thing, it was the day that my wife Vanessa graduated from UW-Eau Claire. And I'm sure many of you have been to college graduations, but if you've never been to one, like, let me just kind of fill you in on what it's like. Like you sit in uncomfortable gym chairs, listening to name after name after name after name of people you don't know being called out. So, like, not a super engaging experience. So needless to say, even though I was proud of Vanessa and I wanted to be there to support her accomplishment, like, I was not super looking forward to sitting through her graduation ceremony in itself. But May 21st, 2011 was also memorable for another reason which is that it's the day that Harold Camping predicted that the world would end. Like, I remember thinking at that time, like, like I'm pretty sure this guy is wrong. Like, the Bible seemed pretty clear, like, no one can know the day. Right? But if he is right, 
At least I want to sit to the graduation ceremony. <laughs> and of course, like, like, he turned out to be wrong, and I had to sit through the whole ceremony. Uh, but the fact that camping was wrong probably wasn't a terribly big surprise to many of us. But camping did have a pretty good-sized group of followers who were convinced that he was right, that he knew when the world would end. And the fact that he was wrong had devastating consequences for some of those people. That some of his followers quit jobs, they sold houses, they gave away almost all their money promoting camping claims. And there's one story of like 5,000 Hmong Christians who all decided to gather at like this remote town in Vietnam to await these predicted events. Like many of these people had to sell everything they had to be able to be able to afford a one-way bus ticket out of town. Right? So they, had, they couldn't afford a ticket back to their home, and they had nothing to return to anyway. Right? So these stories, they, they're tragic. They also make me think about what the days and the weeks and the year following May 21st, 2011, must have been like for some of these people. But that's made me curious. Like, what was it that made these people trust camping in the first place? Because this is not the first time something like this has happened. Like, if you go to Wikipedia, there's an article on there called List of Dates Predicted for Apocalyptic Events. And this page documents over 100 predictions that have been made regarding the end of the world. And so far, like we're still here, like every one of them has been wrong. So the question then is, why are people so inclined to believe someone who says that they know the exact date and time that Jesus is coming back? Like when similar predictions have been wrong time and time again. I think at least part of the answer is that like believing that Jesus' return is happening at a definitive date, it saves you from answering one of the hardest questions we must answer as the people of God. And that question is this. Right? How should we live as the people of God in a society hostile to the things of God? Like, how do I live as one of God's people in a world where the things of the world are totally opposed to God? Right? That's a challenging question for any Christian to think through. Right? Like, How do I honor God while living in a fallen world surrounded by people opposed to him? But the Bible makes clear that we should care about how we live in the world around us. Over and over again in the Bible, we see God giving his people instructions for living in a world opposed to him. And one of the places we see that is in Jeremiah chapter 29. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there. If not, the verse will be on the screen as well. So we just finished going through the book of Habakkuk. Right, and in the book of Habakkuk, God tells the Babylonians, like, I'm going to send you into exile. So now we come to this passage and we're fast-forwarding a little bit. Right, and we see like that's exactly what happened. Right? God sent the Babylonians and they took the people of Judah into exile. Right? The Babylonians come, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, they carry a good chunk of the population of Jerusalem off into exile in Babylon. But they don't carry everyone off. Right? So they just they took 
the people who they thought could benefit their society back to Babylon. They left the old and the infirm and those who thought that they, who they thought would hinder their society left them behind back in Jerusalem and just let them figure it out. So, like young people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego end up in Babylon. But Jeremiah is an old man by this time, and he gets left behind in Jerusalem. So here in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, he writes a letter to the exiles. He writes a letter to the people in Babylon, telling them how to live as God's people in exile. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So in this letter that Jeremiah writes, God's answering the question, how should my people live in a society hostile to him? It's a question that mattered for the exiles in Judah's day, and it's a question that mattered for us today as we seek to live as exiles and sojourners and strangers on this earth in a world opposed to God. And God says that in order to live as exiles in a God-honoring way, we must do three things. We must first accept the past, we must embrace the present, and we must hope in the future. As we live as God's people in a culture opposed to God, we are called to move on from what has happened in the past, to take advantage of the opportunities in the present, and to look forward with hope to the future. So with that in mind, let's read Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie, and they are prophesying to you they are, pro- they are prophesying to you in my name. I didn't, did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So the first thing we see in this passage is that to live in a society hostile to the things of God, God people must accept the past. Verse 4 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In this verse, 
That God reminds the exiles that, that he is the one who sent them into exile. Right? They're not in exile because of some random coincidence. They couldn't have avoided going into exile if they had only had a better military strategy or if they had caught a break or two along the way. They were there because God sent the Babylonians to execute his judgment. And the same thing is true for us. Whatever has happened in the past, God has used that to bring you to this place and this time right now. And he invites you to look forward to the future, accepting whatever has happened in the past. It doesn't mean that if bad things have happened to you in the past, if tragic things have happened, if hard things have happened, that God wanted them to happen, that we should just be happy about it. But it does mean that whatever has happened in the past, God brought you here and now to this place and invites you to follow him into the future. But in our human nature, we're not so good at that. Instead, we tend to dwell on the past and let's just think about all the things we might have done differently. If only I could go back and do that again. I experienced this a lot in seminary. The two things you should know about me to understand this story. One, I've never been great at motivating myself to study for tests. And two, learning languages has never come very easily to me. So you can just imagine for a second how that played out when I had to take Greek and Hebrew in seminary. Like I can't begin to count how many times I was up late at night before a Hebrew or a Greek test, just having studied very little up to that point, just trying to cram in a bunch of foreign words into my head. So I'd be up late, but instead of actually studying, like I'd just sit there and I'd beat myself up for not having studied more in the days and the weeks before the test. And that's me sitting there beating myself up, not actually studying, only made the problem worse. And we see here, like, the Jewish people are inclined to do the same thing if they head into exile. They're stuck dwelling on the past. They're thinking about how things used to be, what they could have done differently, and they're pining for days gone by. And not that we can blame them, just just think for a second how the exile must have looked to the Jewish people. To the Jewish people, right? They're the descendants of Abraham. Like Abraham, who was living in the city of Ur, which is in Babylon when God called him. God calls him and tells him to leave Babylon and go to a new land, a land that God promised to him and to make him a great nation. And like, the rest of Israel's history up to this point has been a story of how God, against all odds, kept that promise. He miraculously gives Abraham children who have grown into a numerous people. He calls Abraham out of Babylon into the land of Israel. He establishes Jerusalem and his temple at the home of God and their people. God has kept his promises to Abraham over more than a thousand years by this point through the process of calling his people out of Babylon and to Jerusalem. And now, to the Jews, it seems like all of that has come undone. Abraham's descendants are right back where Abraham started thousands of years ago. 
under a foreign ruler in Babylon. Over a thousand years of progress towards God keeping his promises, gone, just like that. So the exiles are dejected, they're hopeless. They're struggling to make sense of their path in order to have any hope in the present. But God tells them, he reminds them that he is the one who sent them into exile. God is reminding the exiles that he is still the sovereign God of the universe. That he is still in charge. God didn't lose to the Babylonian gods. He wasn't powerless to stop the Babylonian army. God is still in control. And as long as God is still in control, no matter how bleak things seem, there is still hope. So Jeremiah is telling them, like, there is nothing to be gained by pining for days gone by or by reliving the past and wishing you had done things differently. Jeremiah is calling on the people of Judah to acknowledge their past, acknowledge their sin that caused them to be in this place, and to realize that God has placed them here in Babylon according to his will. He's calling them to learn from the past and to focus on the here and now. To accept what has happened and to move on. And we need to remember the same thing in our own lives. And no matter what you have done in your past, or no matter what has happened to you in the past, God has brought you to this place in this time for his purpose. He's inviting us to stop dwelling on the past and to turn our attention to the present and to embrace the opportunities we find there. Which is the second point we want to look at this morning. God's calling us to embrace the present, to take advantage of the opportunities that are before us where we live. Namely, opportunities to seek the good of those around us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7 say, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For a minute, just try to put yourself in the mindset of the exile from Judah. They've been carried off from their land to a hostile land. Like the Babylonians, they just ransacked their city. They destroyed the Israelites' most holy place of worship. The Babylonians had likely killed family members and friends of the exiles. They'd forcibly removed them from their homes. And now the exiles have to consider the question, like, how should I live in response to all the evil that has been done to me? Like, how should I live? Like, how, would, how would you live right, if you were under the control of a foreign and hated enemy? I think if it was me, like, I'd be inclined to retreat as far into myself as I possibly could. I'd be bitter, and I would engage with the Babylonian culture as little as possible. But God's answer is not that. God's answer is radical. He says, embrace the opportunity that your current situation gives you to do good. And the first step in starting over in a new place is to establish homes and to have kids. 
that when my family and I moved into our current house, it was the tenth house we've lived in in 11 years of Vanessa and I's marriage. Like for a while we were moving like every summer from one apartment to another, from Wisconsin to Minnesota to Indiana to Kentucky, then back to Wisconsin and now finally back, or back to Minnesota and now finally back to Wisconsin. And so, needless to say, like, we are excited to be in a place where, like, as long as you'll keep putting up with me, like, we plan to be for a long time. Like, we're excited to put down roots in a community and have a chance to invest deeply in a place. And that's what God is calling the people of Judah to here. He is saying, like, you're going to be here a while. So put down roots, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have kids, have your kids get married and have kids. Like, take advantage of the opportunities you have. And if he had stopped there, it'd probably be pretty easy to agree with, with all that. It's good advice. Like, build a nice house? Like, sure. Like, I want to be comfortable. Get married, have kids? Sure. Like, those things can bring me joy. But God doesn't stop there. He says in verse 7, don't only seek your well-being, but seek the welfare of the city. In verse 7 he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. God's calling the exiles to seek the welfare of Babylon. To seek the welfare of the city that carried them away into exile and killed their friends and family. And God called us to do the same thing is we live in a society hostile to him. We should seek the welfare of the city or the town around us. And the question then is, like, what does this look like? What does it look like to seek the welfare of our surrounding area? And Tim Keller says, to do this rightly, the church can become neither a fortress nor a mirror. That is to say, like, the church must neither become a fortress by retreating from the, engaging with the city. Right? That the church cannot insulate itself from the sinful actions of the culture around us. We can't just hide and create a Christian bubble and become a fortress where we retreat from those things. But nor can the church become a mirror. Right? Nor can the church embrace those sinful actions of the city and promote them so that members of the church live a lifestyle that is no different than a typical member of the city. We can't be a fortress. We can't just run away and hide. We can't be a mirror. We can't totally accept the culture. We need to guard against both extremes. We see a model of this in Daniel chapter 1. As we mentioned, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were some of the first exiles into Babylon. In the book of Daniel, we see them do several things. Right? We see them accept Babylonian names. We see them accept Babylonian education and Babylonian jobs. Because none of those things broke God's law. But they did refuse to eat food provided to them that would have contained food prohibited by the law. Like and later, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego would refuse to worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar and Danny would refuse to stop praying like despite the threat of grave consequences. But they neither totally insulated themselves from Babylonian culture, nor did they embrace Babylonian culture in all its sinfulness. 
They sought the welfare of Babylon without abandoning their commitment to the Word of God. And that's what we must seek to do as well. And so the question then becomes, like, how do we seek to do that? And so after the service, at like 10.30, we'll meet back in here for cross-training. So after kids go to Sunday school, we'll meet back here at 10.30, and we'll discuss basically that question, the one question I want to talk about during cross-training this week, is what does it look like to seek the welfare of our communities? Like how can the church be active in seeking the welfare of our communities without embracing the culture and its sinfulness? So I would invite you to join us for that. I'm looking forward to that conversation. So, but one way to... Well, the first question, even before we get that far, is to answer... Like, we have to answer for ourselves. Right? Am I more prone to want the church to be a fortress or to be a mirror? Right? Am I more prone to spend all my time insulated from the world, right? just doing Christian activities with my fellow Christians? Or am I more prone to be too worldly, too prone to forsake God's commands in order to be a part of the city? And I think for most of us, the temptation is towards being a fortress. Right? We're, tempted, we're tempted to retreat from the city, like to just do our church activities and spend time with our Christian friends and insulate ourselves in our Christian bubble. At least, that's true for me. Right? And I suspect maybe for some of you as well. Like We could be better at engaging the people of the city, engaging the people around us, and taking advantage of the opportunities to seek the welfare of the city. God has given us opportunities by living here in this place where he has called us to seek the welfare of the city and to do good to those around us. And my hope and my prayer is that we will take advantage of those opportunities. And the reason we can embrace the present, and no matter how bleak the current situation may seem, is that ultimately we have hope in the future. So just look one more time at the command God gives in verses 5 and 6. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. God tells the people to build homes, to plant gardens, to have kids. No faithful Jew would have missed the allusion to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 8, where God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Have kids. Fill the earth and subdue it. Plant gardens. Rule over the earth. There's an allusion there between Jeremiah 29 and Genesis chapter 1. God's given them the same command he gave to Adam and Eve. The exiles had feared that by sending them into exile, God was undoing all that had happened from the time of Abraham's call out of Babylon. But God says, I'm doing something far greater, far better. I'm taking you back to the garden and making you a new creation, giving you a fresh start. And to drive this point home, he says some of the most famous words in the Bible. In verses 10 through, 4, 10 through 11, we read, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan for welfare and not for evil 
to give you a future and a hope. Right? Now, those are some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Right? Like, you can't walk into a Christian bookstore and not find a mug with those words on them. That's for good reason, right? Those are verses filled with hope. But we need to make sure we understand them correctly. Like, so I'm glad we're living back in Wisconsin. But one of the things I miss about Kentucky is like that they used the word y'all. Like it was kind of weird for me for a long time. But it's nice to have a way to make clear that you're talking about more than one person when you say you. Like send it because like for us like you can mean you multiple you plural or just you singular. But y'all just gets rid of all that ambiguity. Because without a word like that, it can be easy to misunderstand some things. And this is one of those times. When God says to Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, what he's really saying is, I know the plans I have for y'all. Right? This isn't a personal promise to individuals. It's a promise to the people of God as a whole. And I know this because right before Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you, he gets a time frame on it. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Now, like, that the people of Judah are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And then God is going to enact these things to bring them back. Like, I don't have any hard research about what the life expectancy was for the people of Judah living in Babylon. But if you assume they were, like, on average 20 years old, this is going to happen 70 years later. Like, I don't think many of them are going to be 90 years old to see the promise. They weren't going to make it that long. Like most of the people Jeremiah was writing to were not going to see the benefit of those famous words. And here's the point. God has good plans for his people. But those plans often span longer than one human lifetime. Which means that God can have good plans for you, but you may not experience them in even this life. And here's why that's important. If we live a life expecting that God's good plans are just around the corner, like, we set ourselves up to be disappointed when they don't come as soon as we expect. But if we understand that God does have good plans, that they may extend beyond even our lifetime before they come to fruition, right? then we can always look to the future in hope. And two chapters later, in Jeremiah 31, God will say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So not only is God leading the people of Judah into a new creation by telling them to be fruitful and multiply, he's also going to give them a new covenant. And through this new covenant, God will forgive sin and remember it no more. And the New Testament tells us that this new covenant is established by Jesus' death on the cross. Like at the Last Supper, Jesus says, This cup, if poured, out for, if poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection means that this new covenant is now established. And for all those who believe in him, we can eagerly await the day when he ushered in the ultimate new creation, right? the new heavens and the new earth. And that gives us 
hope for the future. And with that hope for the future, we can endure any challenges we experience in the present. Being reminded of that glorious future that Jesus' death makes possible is why we celebrate communion. And through communion, we get a tangible reminder that Jesus died to usher in a new covenant between us and God. A covenant that does not depend on our obedience, but relies on the perfect obedience of Jesus. And so, partaking of communion, by partaking, by partaking in communion, like we have the chance right, to remind ourselves of all that Jesus did for us and to identify together as God's people. If you have your communion elements, I invite you to get those out, open them up, give you a minute to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to celebrate communion together and to be identified together as your people. We remind ourselves of what you did for us in Jesus on the cross. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Father, we again thank you for this tangible reminder of your broken body, Jesus, and your shed blood, Jesus. That you came, you lived a sinless life, and yet you died a criminal's death on the cross for us because you loved us so much that you wanted to provide a way for us to be made right with God, have our sins forgiven, and to experience perfect joy and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. God, help us to look forward to that day, look forward to the new heavens and the new earth when we will all worship you free of sin, free of pain, free of death. God, while we wait, help us to live lives that are dedicated to living the way you have called us to live but to live lives that seek the welfare of the city, that seek the good of those around us, that as we live in a world that is hostile to you in many ways, that we would be beacons of light, that we would bring a message of hope and joy to a hurting and fallen and broken world. That we praise you that you make all that possible. You invite us to be part of what you're doing in your universe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we go out from here this morning, that you would go accepting the past, embracing the present, and hoping in the future. You're dismissed. Oh